Now remember, as we look at the book of Daniel, Daniel breaks into two parts. History, prophecy. First six books follow a chronological order. The history of Daniel, the events that occurred within his life. The second set of six, or from chapter 7 through 12, follow a chronology dealing with the visions that Daniel had. And we come to the end of his visions. Daniel already has been given such incredible vision just in the first few chapters as we looked into the book of Daniel. We see that God revealed to Daniel the things that were going to take place with his people. And it's important that we understand that. In the book of Daniel, the first seven chapters were in Aramaic, which was the common tongue. If you will, the Gentile tongue was Aramaic. But from chapters 8 to the end of the book is in Hebrew. Specifically for his people. We're going to see over and over again, the angel declared to Daniel, your people. This is for your people. Remember Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel. This is for your people, for your land, for the children of Israel. The entire prophecy deals with them. That's why Daniel doesn't talk about the British Empire or this empire, that empire, Spain and Portugal and all the powers that ever existed on the world because none of those had a single thing to do with Israel. None of them. So he lays out the, the outline, really, for the nation of Israel's history. God's prophetic timetable is the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 tell us that God is not done with Israel. Israel's not finished. And that should give you and I hope. Because if God throws Israel out and says, well, forget them, well, what's to keep him from throwing you out? Paul would build on that concept in the book of Romans that we were a wild olive branch grafted into the olive tree. And if God can graft us in, how much more will he be able to restore the nation to whom he gave the promise? Don't ever forget that when God gave the promise to Abraham, it was an unconditional covenant. There was nothing that Abraham or his seed could do to lose the promises that God gave him. And over and over again, when God declares himself to the children of Israel, how does he do it? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because those three guys, the Lord repeated the Abrahamic covenant to. Those three guys, the Lord said, I will, I will, I will. He gave that unconditional... He doesn't say, I, I'm the God of Moses... Because that would place him under the Mosaic Covenant, under the law. We know what the law accomplishes, right? It does the same thing for us, it does for them. And so the Lord has a plan, and that gives me great hope. In Romans 9, 10, 11, I love going through those chapters as the Lord just lays out. All day long, I reach out to my people. And the day will come, Romans eleven twenty five says, when they will turn to him. They'll come. It says in Romans eleven twenty five. That when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, the fullness of the Gentiles, when they have entered in, when the, those who will receive the truth of God's word in this comma that we're living in today, the church, when those, the last one will receive, the door will be closed. And God's going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. And that's what we see God doing 
here in the book of Daniel. As he focuses on their history in Daniel's 70 weeks, that's going to rule as our outline as we go through the prophetic scriptures that God gives Daniel. Now you remember, last week we, we cracked the first 35 verses of chapter 11. This makes the critics of the Bible crazy. Because there's 135 fulfilled prophecies in the first 35 verses of chapter 11. 135. If you would like uh, some information on where to get those, uh, I did my best to go over the majority of them last time we got together. And I had a a whole slide presentation that didn't work. (laughs) So... If you would like some of that information, I'd be happy to get it for you. But basically, it's a history lesson starting at the death of Alexander the Great and moving forward through his four generals that take over the four corners of his empire, moving from them to focus on the Ptolemy and Seleucid empires, which basically deals with Egypt and Syria, kings of the south, kings of the north. All the way through, Daniel covers history prophetically and the critics of the bible don't know what to do with it one of the favorite things that they'll do is they'll say well daniel was written in the maccabean period while all those things were going on that's how daniel knew about them there's only one problem daniel was already written in septuagint in 270 bc which was before all those things happened so for the critics to say daniel didn't write it well there was one in the septuagint And the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what? They found one that predated the Septuagint as a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So now what are you going to do? You have to accept that the Lord gave to Daniel an opportunity to see the future. And Daniel laid it out. Some of the most incredible prophecies that that we've gone through. Daniel chapter 9 is still my favorite. The exact day Messiah would reveal himself as Messiah to the nation of Israel, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, April 6, 32 A.D., just like Daniel chapter 9 said it would. So as we take a look, we're going to begin tonight, Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 36. Now we are, we just finished talking about a character that the Bible talks a lot about named Antiochus Epiphany. The reason the Bible talks a lot about him is because he is a model, he's a type, he's a shadow. He's a foreshadowing of another character that will come on the scene that we commonly call the Antichrist. And whenever we use that term Antichrist, it is important that we realize we're not talking about the against Christ. We're talking about the in place of, pseudo-Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I came in my Father's name, and you won't receive me. But another will come how? In his own name. Him you will receive. This is the Mashiach, the Messiah that Israel will receive. And the Bible tells us that they're going to receive him because he's going to come. He's going to rise up on the scene and he's going to come with a peace plan. In fact, if you go to Israel today and you were to ask them, since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, you no longer have the ability to to follow the, the genealogies. Nobody's really sure except for a couple of families what lineage or what line they come from, how will you recognize the Messiah? It's supposed to be the house of David. How are you going to know who the Messiah is? If the Messiah is not Jesus Christ, whom you can point to, whom all the lines point to, all the prophecies fulfilled by, if that's not the Messiah, how will you recognize him? And they'll tell you. He will bring peace 
and he'll rebuild the temple. So, the Bible tells us, the book of Daniel is amazing. The book of Revelation tells us that the Antichrist will come on the scene with a peace treaty. Seven years. Seven year peace plan. That he will rebuild the temple. It tells us that he is going to, out of one side of his mouth, speak peace. And out the other side of his mouth, bring war. That all of his promises are empty, but that the nation is going to receive him. They're going to hail him. For how long? Three and a half years. Three and a half years is how long it's going to take the Antichrist to proclaim himself to be God in the Most High, in the Holy of Holies, in the rebuilt temple. And the reason that's all important is because Daniel foreshadows it all in the life of Antiochus Epiphany. For he did all those things, with the exception of he did not declare himself to be God. He raised up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He sacked the temple. We talked about all that last time. He he was mad because he went to war. Remember I told you it was Egypt and Syria were fighting each other. Look on a map. There's one piece of land you have to go through to get from Egypt to Syria. It's called Israel. And every time they would fight with each other, they'd trample through Israel. And if they had a victory, when they went back through Israel, they'd slap them around. If they went and got defeated, they'd come through Israel and slap them around. It was just a common process that constantly took place following the, the prophecy of Malachi during the 400 years of silence. That is what was going on in the nation of Israel until the Maccabean revolt. So it's important that we have an understanding. Daniel was given this prophetic view of the history of all the kings and all the battles that would take place because they foreshadow that final battle. They foreshadow for us that period uh, spoken of in the Bible more than any other. That most famous period of time, Daniel's 70th week, the final seven prophetic years, and the time of Jacob's trouble, that final three and a half years. Let's take a look. Daniel chapter 11 Beginning at verse 36. Now, then the king will do according to his own will. Now, this is where we get the title, the willful king. It's a title that is used for the Antichrist, one of the many. The king will do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper until the wrath has been accomplished. He's going to prosper until the wrath has been accomplished. Now, he's, he, remember what we shared last time, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, where God focuses in on a, on a particular person in history, and then he seems to get out of focus and looks at the power behind. We talked about some of the demonic powers, Satan specifically, that we read about in prophecies in, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Well, here, he's focused into Antiochus Epiphanes, but then he begins to look beyond him. Beginning in verse 36, we are now looking at that final character. Verse 36 was not fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes did not raise himself above every other god. He's now looking forward. We had 135 fulfilled prophecies, but these prophecies are yet future. And they will be fulfilled in that willful king, the, the little horn, the Antichrist. He is going to want to exalt himself 
above every other God. Now the interesting thing is, he will prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. Folks, that final seven year period of time is known as the time of the outpouring of God's wrath. One of the main reasons why I hold to the pre-trib rapture view is simply what the scriptures declare to us that we are not appointed unto wrath. I'm not talking about persecution or tribulation. I'm not talking about hard times. I know just like you know that Jesus said in this world we will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer what? I have overcome the world. I know we're going to go through hard times. I know that persecution purifies the church and that God doesn't always deliver us from persecution. But I also know God declares emphatically that the wrath of God was poured out upon His Son on the cross. And that I am not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I reject the concept that I have to be purified somehow because the blood of Jesus Christ wasn't enough. The blood of Jesus Christ, to me, is enough. Now the good news is, we don't all have to agree, right? It doesn't make any difference. We'll all know who's right sooner or later, won't we? Yeah, one way or the other, we'll know who's right. And I promise you this, I'm not going to quit following Jesus. I don't care what happens. I'm not going to quit following him no matter what. But I do believe that the Bible lays that out. And when the scripture talks about here, he's going to, uh, he's going to prosper until the wrath has been accomplished. What's he talking about? The end of the wrath of God, which takes place at what? Revelation chapter 19. What happens in that chapter? Jesus Christ returns. Who's he return with? His church. Jesus Christ returns. It's interesting because when we do a study of the book of Revelation, you're going to notice that beginning at chapter 4, from Revelation chapter 1 until chapter 4, the church is mentioned over and over and over and over. But starting at chapter 4, no church. Church isn't mentioned again. Next time you see the mention of the church is when he speaks of him returning with the bride of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. So, Jesus is going to return and the culmination of the wrath of God is going to take place. The Bible tells us what's going to happen. Jesus doesn't need us. We'll be there. But He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to fight. Remember we talked about today, this morning when we went over uh, John chapter 18, when, when they asked, when Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And He said, I am. And they all fell down. The Bible tells in Revelation 19 that He will destroy the Antichrist with the word of his mouth. The sword in his mouth. Speaking the word. Think about this. How did God create the heavens and the, and the earth? He spoke. It was. The Bible tells in Colossians and many other places that Jesus Christ is the one who created all things. Without him, nothing was created that was created. So Jesus is attributed the work of creation. God the Father is attributed the work of creation. And the Holy Spirit. That's why we hold to the view of the Trinity. That there are three distinct persons in one God. And so all are given that, that attribute. If Jesus was able to speak and creation happen, how, what would he have to do to make people just fall apart? Just speak the word, wouldn't he? The Bible says that in him you consist. Jesus holds the world together. Peter tells us what happens when he lets go, right? The earth will melt with a fervent heat. He just let go. What holds Adam together? 
People will argue about it forever. Smarter men than me argue about it. I'm not going to try to explain it. I'll tell them what it is. Jesus holds it together. He holds I'm, I'm always... This, what a rabbit trail. I'm always amazed, though. i gotta, I got to share this one thing. I, did, I, I studied uh, a lot of the things that went on during the, the time where, where we as a United States developed the ability to, to have a nuclear bomb. One of the things that the scientists were not sure of when they split the first atom was that the chain reaction would stop. And they did it anyway. Does that, that just muddles my mind. I mean, there was a possibility in their minds as they wrote out on paper that once we start this chain reaction, it won't stop. And the earth would be melting with a fervent heat right then. And they did it anyway. Because the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. There's no end to what he won't do. But anyhow, it's Jesus Christ that holds all those things together. At the end of the wrath of God, the Bible tells us that he's going to tread the winepress of the fierceness of God's wrath alone. The Bible tells us that that when we see him returning... We'll see him returning, and he's going to be covered with blood. And we'll say, where have you been? And he will say, I've been treading the winepress of the fierceness of God's wrath alone. And then the scripture tells us that the blood will flow to the horse's bridle through the valley of Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel is 180 miles long. That's a big place. The valley of Jezreel empties into a, a, a plain that you'll know the name of well. The plain of Megiddo or Armageddon. Where the armies of the, of the world will be gathered to do battle against the Antichrist. Until Jesus returns and they have a common enemy. But prior to that, Daniel's going to tell us, and we'll see as we study the scriptures that they're brought there to do battle with one another. Isn't that man's way? I mean, face it. Are we going to leave one guy in charge forever? There's no way. How long before somebody decides to go to war with them? How much time of peace has a, has a planet Earth known in its history? Like eight years of peace in the history of the world? Yeah, we're not very good at that. We're much better at causing grief and going to war. So... Back to the scripture. Until the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. Folks, I want you to understand that what God spoke will happen. Now, how we interpret what God spoke may be different. Because when we look at fulfilled prophecy, it's easy to see, right? When we look at prophecy that has yet been unfulfilled, we don't have a real good track record. Think about some of the things... That, that the wisest people in the United States have said, for example, man will never be able to travel more than 40 miles an hour. If he does, his heart will explode. That's not true, is it? I travel faster than 40 miles an hour out of my driveway sometimes. And my heart has not exploded. When Henry Ford developed the, 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 the car... They said, oh, it's a passing fad. It'll never last. The horse and buggy, that's where you need to keep your money in a horse and buggy. It's just a passing fad. Really? How many horse and buggies have you seen lately? 
But you see, when we look forward, we don't see a 2020 vision. But we do the best we can in interpreting what God's Word lays out for us. And as God tells Daniel, in the last days, knowledge, specifically about the Scripture, is going to be increased. Our eyes will be open, the eyes of our understanding, the Holy Spirit. Isn't He able to lead us and guide us and help us to realize and recognize things that God's Word talks about? What we need to know is, when it's all said and done, Jackie might be wrong, but God won't be. His Word will be true, perfect, all the way through. Well, look what he says. Verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now, a lot of people look at this and they, they come up with a couple of ideas about the Antichrist. Possibilities. One is that he may be Jewish. Now, the problem with that is that the beast, the Antichrist, in the book of Revelation, rises up out of the sea. That is typically a symbol of the Gentile nations. Okay, but we can't be dogmatic about it. What we know is he's going to disregard the God of his fathers. Well, any country he grows up in, any place where he comes up has a God of their fathers, right? They have some type of a religious system. So the idea is he's got no regard for religion, period. I think that's what the scriptures are laying out for us. And then it says, not only that, not only does he not regard the God of his fathers, but nor the desire of women. Now, we immediately want to look at that and say, he's going to be gay. He's going to be a homosexual. He's, going to, he's not going to want to, to have anything to do with women. But remember, when we look at the scripture, especially the Old Testament, we need to have a Hebrew mindset. That was a Hebrew idiom. It was a, a figure of speech used of the, the desire of women was that they would give birth to the Mashiach Nagid. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, every woman from that period wanted the desire of women was that they would give birth to the Messiah. It's a messianic title. It's a messianic title that looks toward the fact that not only does he not regard the religion of his fathers, the God of his fathers, no religion whatsoever, but that he doesn't care about the Messiah, Mashiach. He, he ridicules all that. Now, he's going to be declared Messiah, but he don't care. It's for him what's it all about. It's all about power. It's all about what I'm able to do. Nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he will exalt himself above all. Everything. He is, this guy will declare himself to be an object of worship. Antiochus Epiphanes didn't do that. This guy will declare himself worthy of worship. The Bible tells us that Satan is going to enter him, and he, what has Satan wanted his entire history of being? He wants worship. He wants to exalt himself above the Most High. He's got this desire for worship, and so this is what we're going to see in this in the antichrist or in this pseudo christ now he says but in their place he will honor a god of fortresses and a god which his fathers did not know he will honor with gold and silver precious stones and pleasant thing 
So the first thing that we see, he's going to honor a God of fortresses, military might and strength. God always told his people not to number their armies. He told his people not to number or multiply chariots, not to multiply horses. Why? Because he doesn't want their trust to be in the army. He wants their trust to be in him. But this guy, he's going to multiply. He's going to have. He's going to have a great fighting force. Now there was a time we looked at ourselves, the United States, and said, "Hey, we're the top of the of the heap." Well, we're only at the top of the heap if somebody gives us some money to be the top of the heap, because we're rapidly unable to go out and and fund another war. The money's not there. We may have the technology, but we don't have the ability. The Antichrist, he's going to have, it's like, it's like the whole concept behind the UN, right? All the world, all the countries of the world would give their military power to the United Nations, and they would wield that power to accomplish peace on the earth. Same kind of thing here. He's going to serve a, a God of fortresses. And then he says, a God that his fathers did not know. This God that he's going to develop, we know, is going to be himself. Now, what that God's going to be called, how he's going to package that whole deal, there will be one religion under the Antichrist. One religion bound together. Everybody accepts everybody. We saw a picture, remember? Hebrew mindset is always patterned. We saw a picture of it in Rome. We look at the church of Smyrna and the persecution of the church of Smyrna. Why were they persecuted? They wouldn't take a pinch of incense and declare Caesar's God. Because they wouldn't do that, they were slaughtered. Six million believers, six million Christians lost their life under ten different Roman empire or Roman uh, uh, Caesars in the persecution of Rome. And that's just a small fraction of what's been lost in the 20th century. I mean, just in the genocide that takes place. I think there's more than that just in Rwanda, uh, the Christians that have been killed by, uh, by the Muslim counterpart. So we see that that is still going on. He is going to serve a God that, that his fathers don't know. And in verse 39, thus he will act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. He's going to present this, this one world religion. Now, Revelation builds on the concept, right? What's he going to use? The false prophet. The false prophet will be the mouthpiece for the one world religion that's going to gather together all things under the power of the Antichrist. Why? Because the exact reason that Rome did it. If you unite a country's religion then you strengthen that country in terms of their ability to fight and stand together that's why rome did it that's why they did it and that's what the antichrist is going to do oh if we can you who cares truth didn't matter it was could be any bogus religion we just got to have everyone united under one banner and that's his desire that's what he wants to accomplish now look at verse 40 at the time of the end. That's a phrase you're going to see over and over and over again in these next several verses. At the time of the end, the last days, at the time of the end, specifically what we're looking at is during that time of Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble. 
It says, the king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north. Now remember, when we were going through chapter 11, it was the king of the south and the king of the north fighting each other all the time. And Antiochus Epiphanes was one of those guys trampling through Israel to, to try to kill each other. But now the king of the north and the king of the south are fighting him. They're fighting him. See, we're looking at this other world ruler. We're looking at the Antichrist. The king of the south probably is Egypt. The king of the north, if it follows biblical typology, will be Syria. If it doesn't, if you go north of Syria, you hit Russia. Now, we do know that the scripture prophesies in Ezekiel chapter 38 that Russia in a, in a group grouping with Persia, which would be Iran, part of Iraq, Syria, was going to form a coalition that will attack Israel. Now, whether or not that is what this is talking about, and it happens at Armageddon, tend to think that it's going to happen prior to, but it doesn't have to. There will be a battle where the king of the north, being Russia, Gog and Magog, you've heard of that, right? Gog and Magog speaks of that area where Russia is today. So those will come down and do battle. Now, whether that's this king of the north or it's Syria, all throughout chapter 11... King of the north was Syria. King of the south was Egypt. So it may just be those guys. They're going to come against the Antichrist like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. What does that mean? Antichrist is going to whoop them. He's going to win. He's going to go to war against those guys. And he's going to waste them. He's going to wipe them out. And he will also enter the glorious land. Anytime the scripture talks about the glorious land, speaking of Israel, speaking of the nation of Israel, he'll enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now that is kind of interesting. There are those three peoples are going to escape the power of the Antichrist. For some reason, probably it is a blessing that God gives because those three people groups, you look on a map, make up the country we know of today as Jordan. Jordan is one of the few countries in the Middle East that has been able to enact a lasting peace with Israel. Another interesting point about Jordan in Jordan, there is a little place called Petra. And the scriptures seem to indicate, again, we can't be dogmatic, seems to indicate that the remnant, the Jews at the abomination of desolation are going to flee. Remember, Jesus told them in Matthew 24, don't even go in your houses. You see the abomination of desolation flee. And the book of Isaiah seems to indicate that the earth is going to swallow them up. That the earth, and, and the word used for earth is the same word used for Petra. Same, it's the rock, like Peter. Petra. And so I had an opportunity to go to Petra, and there actually are churches, or have been churches, that send tracts and stuff to Petra to have stored there in the hopes one day that Israel, when Israel gathers there, they'll have an opportunity to read some of those things. They also have stored up uh, storable food and things in that area. But the neat thing about Petra, if you ever have a chance to go there, maybe, who knows, maybe one day we'll put together a trip to, to Israel and we'll go to Petra. 
you're going to walk down what's called a seek. The seek is no wider than this aisle. Each side of that seek will go up for more than 100 feet on both sides. You walk through this little seek, and bloop, you come into this city carved out of the sandstone in Petra. Just carved there. What, what about the water? Well, they still have cisterns in Petra that work. They carved, the Nabataeans carved in cisterns where they, when what water comes down the sides of those cliffs, it catches in gutters. And those gutters go in the cisterns, hollowed out points in the rock where they can come and draw water. Still work today. All of those things still function. The crazy thing is, it would even be a bit of a challenge with a smart bomb to get down inside of one of them seeks to be able to get them. Now you hit the top of it, but the Lord seems to indicate that that's the area where the nation of Israel, the remnant, those whom the Antichrist doesn't kill, that that's where they're going to go, that that's where they'll find their, their peace. And, like I said, Petra's in Jordan, and Jordan makes up the land of these three uh, people groups that we just talked about. So, he goes on, then verse 42, he says, He will stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will have power over the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and from the north will trouble him. Therefore, he will go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. This is the moment when Antichrist turns. Now listen, Revelation tells us his fury is going to be against the nation of Israel. Why? Because Satan's within him. And God has made an unconditional promise to the nation of Israel that they would in inherit the land given to them by God. And Satan, if he can wipe out the nation of Israel, he foils the word of God, and the word of God is brought to, 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 to no effect. So, Satan hates the nation of Israel. There is no people group on the planet Earth that has been persecuted more than a Jew. Nobody. Nobody. So, he is going to be attacking them. They're going to go to Petra, or God's going to protect them in or with the earth in some way. And then the Antichrist, while he's furious against those who have escaped the Holocaust that he's brought against the nation of Israel, he's going to hear that the Tigris and Euphrates have dried up and the kings of the east are coming to make war against him. book of Revelation lays out for us the kings of the east probably being a conglomeration of Japan and China among other countries. Why are they going to want to go to war against the Antichrist? Well, I can think of at least one reason. You know that, that China has a rule that you can only have one child, right? And what does every Chinese family want for their one child? They want a boy. They slaughter girls by the thousands. Just let them die so that they can have a boy. Well, where are they going to find wives for all those boys? At some point, they're going to need to go out and pull in a gene pool. They're going to need to pull in another country. They're going to need to go out and conquer. What is the thing that's going to mark the kings of the east? A 200 million man army. China's had that since the 60s. 200 million man army. So 
The kings of the east are going to come. Antichrist is furious. His armies, he's, he's just been trying to wipe out the nation of Israel and the remnant of the, of the Jewish people. And he will plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion. Between the seas is, could probably be between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Could also be between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. The concept is that he's going to set up his palace or his fortress uh, there in the nation of Israel, perhaps even in Jerusalem. So he's going to set that up. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, chapter 12, continuing with that same idea. Now, where are they? They're, they're in the plains of Armageddon. Antichrist is going to go to Armageddon. He's going to meet the kings of the east, the kings of the north, in the one place on earth that has been called the most perfect battlefield on the planet. The most perfect battlefield on the planet. You can't imagine how big Armageddon is, how big that valley is. When I saw it, I had no problem understanding all these armies being in that place. It is enormous, huge, huge area of land, farmland right now in the nation of Israel. So it says in in chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, again, we're going to see that phrase over and over again. He's talking about the end days. Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Whose people? Who's the angel talking to? Daniel. Who stands watch over his people? His people being the Jewish people of the nation of Israel. He's talking about Michael the archangel is the guardian over the nation of Israel. This is where we get that concept, that ideal. So Michael is the one that watches over. Remember we talked about powers behind thrones. Michael would be part of the power behind, or the protection behind the nation of Israel. Then, then there shall be a time of trouble such as never, such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. So the picture we see here is very similar to the picture pattern we see in the book of Genesis with the flood and Noah. Noah being the the people of God, a family, eight people, were saved through the flood, right? They were carried through the flood to the other side. Here in Daniel, speaking to the nation of Israel, they're given the same promise, that they will be carried through this time of Jacob's trouble, the worst time to come upon the earth. Your people shall be delivered. And then he says this, everyone who is found, what? Written in the book. Folks, a lot of people get this concept that people are saved a lot of different ways. Like, you know, the, one of the more confusing areas of Scripture when Paul says, and all of Israel shall be saved. And people look at that and say, well, well so if I was born in Israel or I'm a Jewish person, it's, I'm good, I'm, I'm in, I'm God's people? Well, no. Jesus said... That God could make sons of Abraham, or actually John the Baptist said it, God could make sons of Abraham out of the rocks. It's, it doesn't make you a believer, a truster in the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King, someone who's put their faith and trust in, in God Almighty and Jesus Christ as Messiah, 
Just because you're born, just because your parents are believers don't make you one. The nation of Israel and the Old Testament saints are saved by faith just like we are. That's why the Lord said, not all who call themselves Israel are of Israel. Any more than all who call themselves Christians are Christians. Anybody can throw around a title, right? But it's those who are written in the book. The Lamb's book of life. Abraham's name will be there. Moses' name will be there. Did they believe in Jesus? Sure, they saw him afar off, but they believed. They trusted. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him righteousness. Moses gave a prophecy that a prophet like unto him would come, that, that he gave a prophecy of the Messiah, seeing the Messiah afar off as the Lord moved through him. Folks are saved by faith, not by who they're born. So the Lord's laying out for it. Just because you call yourself a Jew or call yourself a, of Israel or you call yourself of the church... That doesn't mean anything. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Is your name found in that place? And the name is written there when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You place your faith in Him. So, all those who are written in the book. Now look at at verse 2. Pretty incredible. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Really? Really? Do you catch it? Many? One at all. Here's what is being said. I could make it a little clearer. In the Hebrew, it's very clear. In the English, it's fuzzy. I know you can't imagine such a thing. But it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. These, or those who awake, to everlasting life, and those to shame and everlasting contempt. What's he talking about? Many will wake up or many will be resurrected. They will receive everlasting life. Those who don't or who are held until the time of the great white throne judgment when all the living and the dead, when Hades will give up the dead that are in it, that will be that, that resurrection unto the great white throne judgment from which no one survives. If they're in the great white throne judgment, their name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. So what he's talking about here is, in many, there will be those who awake, who are resurrected prior to that final uh, resurrection that we're going to see at the end of the book of Revelation. This resurrection will take take place first, and these will be uh, resurrected to everlasting life, and those to shame and everlasting contempt. Then those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, he's still talking about those perhaps that are resurrected. Some people, some commentators see in this verse, verse 3, the 144,000, that it's talking about those guys and all the people that they're going to turn uh, to, to faith in the Lord. Maybe... Maybe not, you know, like I said, after it happens, we'll know perfectly. Unfortunately, after it happens, we won't get to predict anymore. But uh, it could be speaking of that, could be speaking of of just those who have uh, been faithful to lead others to the Lord. Now, verse 4. 
But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, when we look at this verse, a lot of people look at it and say, knowledge, well, knowledge doubles every, I forget how many years they say, the knowledge on the earth doubles every few years, and there's been more knowledge in the last several years, but that's not even what he's talking about. The word used for knowledge in the Hebrew is ha-hada. It means the knowledge. It's speaking about knowledge about God's word. That the knowledge, the knowledge on God's word, that that's what's going to increase. Knowing how to do more things isn't necessarily going to get us anywhere, but a greater understanding of God's word is. And we need to realize something, folks. A lot of people look at church history and they want to define doctrine or issues by church history. It, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work by, you can't always go back to the early church fathers and say, well, uh, they didn't say this, so it must not be true. Because knowledge about God's word increases. And it doesn't just increase in the areas that people like to argue about. For example, we look at this. I wanted to share this, this quote from you that I, that I found from a commentary. It says, additionally, we look at church history. We see that God has successfully had the church focus on specific areas of doctrine at different periods. Our present understanding of many areas of biblical teaching were only most carefully and precisely defined after God appointed the church to focus on that doctrinal area. For example, in the second through fourth centuries, the church focused on the doctrine of Scripture. That's where we built what's known as the canon of Scripture. The Bible was defined. Those books that were apart were accepted. Those that weren't were rejected. Then he says, in the 4th century, the focus of the doctrine of God focused on the doctrine of God in the Trinity. So in the 4th century, now we're 400 years removed, almost, from Christ and the church, the light that was dawning in the church, developing the concept of the doctrine of Trinity. Does that mean the Trinity didn't exist till the 4th century? No. It means that's when the church was enlightened. That's as knowledge was increased. And we began to see and develop those concepts. And that's what he's, he's talking about. In the 5th century, the focus, focus was on the doctrine of Christ. In the 5th through 7th centuries, the focus was on the doctrine of man. And the 15th to the 17th centuries, the focus was on the doctrine of salvation. 16th and 17th centuries, the focus was on the doctrine of the church. So it should not surprise us that it wasn't until the 19th and 20th centuries, at the time of the end, that the focus turned to the doctrine of last things or eschatology. It's not surprising that that's the way it goes. Because God's word laid out. Daniel, seal up this book. It's not for you. It's for the time of the end. When people will go to and fro, and knowledge of the word will be increased. God is constantly revealing himself. Aren't you growing every day? Are you in the same place you were now that you were 10 years ago? But I hope not. We're supposed to be moving forward, growing and learning, constantly drawing near the Lord. If that's true of our individual lives... Why not be true of the corporate body of Christ? That the body of Christ is growing 
in understanding as they develop the doctrines as God is God not able to guide us and lead us and as he directs us so Daniel seems to lay that out for us here um, that knowledge would increase and, and that's what I think is we're seeing take place now are we the the last year boy it wouldn't it be great if God come back tomorrow that'd be super I'd be excited click my heels woo be excited but I know God has called me to occupy till he comes right no matter when I'm supposed to occupy till he comes. I'm supposed to do business. I'm supposed to fulfill my calling. Fight the good fight like Paul, right? Keep the faith. No matter what, until that day when I see Jesus face to face. Now, it says in verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the water, so we have three guys. You guys see it, right? One on one side of the river, one on the other side of the river, and one hovering over the waters. You see it? I, Daniel, looked. There were two others, one on this riverbank, one on the other riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, this man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. So it's possible some commentaries see that person as Jesus Christ, angel on either side of the riverbank. Jesus Christ is that third person over the middle and he said to him how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be and i heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time times and a half time we've seen that before haven't we daniel 7 25 9 27 12 7 Roman or Revelation 11 2 11 3 12 6 12 14 13 5 time times and a half time three and a half years the time of Jacob's trouble that second half of the tribulation period after the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist presents himself as God so he's telling them this is how long this is going to take place time time and a half time and when the power of the holy people have been completely shattered all these things will be finished all these things will be accomplished and then although i heard i did not understand now you can you put yourself in daniel's shoes i mean we confuse ourselves right and we're here you know several thousand years after daniel and daniel's back then seeing all these things i've been i'd have been confused I don't care how many times they try to explain it to me. I don't know that I would have got it. Daniel said the same thing. Look, though I heard, I didn't understand. And I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Daniel's saying, what is going on? What is all this stuff about? And he said unto him, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Literally, he said, Daniel, don't worry about it. It's not about you. It's for the people at the end. This is sealed to you. You can't understand it. But it will be open to them. So at the time of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, essentially and from chapter 7 on, were closed. It was difficult to understand, but it was revealed as time moved forward. Now, verse 10 says, Now many shall be purified, Many again, 
not all. Many shall be purified, made white, refined, but the wicked will do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. What is it that Paul wrote for us in Corinthians? That the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Natural man won't get it. The unsaved, unregenerate man will not understand the Scriptures. It's not until you have the Holy Spirit guiding and leading that you'll be able to understand. The wise shall understand. And from that time, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, folks, chapter, or verse 11, 12, and 13 you can find 10,000 explanations and none of them agree with each other. Because we don't know. We do know that God's word will be true, right? So from the moment that the daily sacrifice is taken away, when the Antichrist takes away the daily sacrifice, and the abomination of desolation is set up, which should happen at the middle of the tribulation period, seems to be what the Bible indicates, at the midway point, three and a half years, that there will be 1,290 days. There's just one problem. Three and a half years is 1,260 days. There are 30 extra days. Why? Don't know. Yeah, lots of leap years. Um, I'll give you some of the best ideas that people have. It's that, that 30 days is the amount of time uh, that will take place while Jesus establishes his kingdom. So he will rule and reign. He'll defeat the Antichrist at 1,260 days. 30 days later, his kingdom will be moving forward. We don't know, but we do know it's true. We just don't know how to plug the pieces together. But if that confused you, well, definitely don't read the next one. Because the next one said, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Now that's 45 days after the 30 days. What was that for? We don't know. One of the best explanations that I've seen is that that is the period of time in which the judgment of the nations takes place. In the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which happens to be in the Kidron Valley, if you were at church today, you saw a picture of the Kidron Valley. That The Valley of Jehoshaphat is part of the Kidron Valley. That is where Jewish legend says the judgment of the nations will take place. As Jesus sets up his kingdom, we have Matthew chapter 25, the separation of the sheep from the goats. The judgment of the nations and those who will enter into his kingdom, the millennial reign, and those who will not. And that that's what those 45 days are. Uh, we don't know. We'll know after the 1,335 days, we'll be right on it. We'll have exactly what it was all about. But we do know it is true. It will take place this way. But you, he says to Daniel, you go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Do you hear what it is that Jesus is saying to him? You will rest. Daniel, you're okay. And at the resurrection, you will rise. Your name is written in the book. 
Isn't that exciting? That, that God, Daniel's heart, you know, he's, he's a little bit freaked out about all this stuff. But the Lord says, Daniel, don't, don't get so focused on that stuff. Because really, Daniel, that has nothing to do with you. And while I am intrigued by eschatology and the study of end things, the one thing I really want to study is Jesus Christ and pleasing Him and living my life for Him. I do that, and all the other stuff's going to come together just like it ought to. All that other stuff was never intended to put fear into, into the hearts of God's people. It was to lay out for God's people that God knows the beginning from the end. He is in control. He knows how it's all going to flow, and we can trust Him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we can gather before you. We thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you that Daniel hopefully is going to create within us a hunger to understand and know the truth. We pray that, that, that these studies that we have will light a fire in someone's heart that they say, man, I just want to more understand these visions. I want to understand, God, what you're saying here. Father, that's your desire, that we would have a hunger and a thirst for your word. So, Father, we pray that that, that will be accomplished, Lord. We ask, Father, that the words that come from you would be lasting. The words that just come from us, our ideas, our concepts, they just wash away. It's your word that's eternal. It's your word that will be fulfilled completely and totally in accordance with what your word declared. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for this opportunity, God, and we just thank you for this time that we can gather before you in an attitude of worship. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, just bless us. This time, bless us with your presence as we seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of worship. We invite you.